This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Adventures of Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain. Chapter 29. Huck Saves the Widow. The first thing Tom heard on Friday morning was a glad piece of news. Judge Thatcher's family had come back to town the night before. Both Injun Joe and the treasurer sank into secondary importance for a moment, and Becky took the chief place in the boy's interest. He saw her, and they had an exhausting good time playing high spy and gully keeper with a crowd of their schoolmates. The day was completed and crowned in a peculiarly satisfactory way. Becky teased her mother to appoint the next day for the long-promised and long-delayed picnic, and she consented. The child's delight was boundless, and Tom's not more moderate. The invitations were sent out before sunset, and straightway the young folks of the village were thrown into a fever of preparation and pleasurable anticipation. Tom's excitement enabled him to keep awake until a pretty late hour, and he had good hopes of hearing Huck's mow, and of having his treasure to astonish Becky and the picnickers with next day. But he was disappointed. No signal came that night. Morning came, eventually, and by ten or eleven o'clock a giddy and rollicking company were gathered at Judge Thatcher's, and everything was ready for a start. It was not the custom for elderly people to mar picnics with their presence. The children were considered safe enough under the wings of a few young ladies of eighteen and a few young gentlemen of twenty-three or thereabouts. The old steam ferry-boat was chartered for the occasion. Presently the gay throng filed up the main street laden with provision-baskets. Sid was sick and had to miss the fun. Mary remained at home to entertain him. The last thing Mrs. Thatcher said to Becky was, "'You'll not get back till late. Perhaps you'd better stay all night with some of the girls that live near the ferry landing, child.' "'Then I'll stay with Susie Harper, mamma. "'Very well. And mind and behave yourself, and don't be any trouble.' Presently, as they tripped along, Tom said to Becky, "'Say, I'll tell you what we'll do. Instead of going to Joe Harper's, we'll climb right up the hill and stop at the widow Douglas's. She'll have ice-cream. She has it most every day. Dead loads of it. And she'll be awful glad to have us.' "'Oh, that will be fun!' Then Becky reflected a moment and said, "'But what will Mama say?' "'Well, how she'll ever know?' The girl turned the idea over in her mind and said reluctantly, I reckon it's wrong, but—but but shucks, your mother won't know, and so what's the harm? All she wants is that you'll be safe, and I bet you she'd have said go there if she'd a thought about it. I know she would." The Widow Douglas's splendid hospitality was a tempting bait. It and Tom's persuasions presently carried the day, so it was decided to say nothing to anybody about the night's program. Presently it occurred to Tom that maybe Huck might come in this very night and give the signal. The thought took a deal of the spirit out of his anticipation. Still, he could not bear to give up the fun at Widow Douglas's. And why should he give it up, he reasoned. The signal did not come the night before, so why should it be any more likely to come to-night? The sure fun of the evening outweighed the uncertain treasure. And, boy-like, he determined to yield to the stronger inclination, and not allow himself to think of the box of money another time that day. Three miles below town the ferry-boat stopped at the mouth of the woody hollow and tied up. The crowd swarmed ashore, and soon the forest distances and craggy heights echoed far and near with shoutings and laughter. 
all the different ways of getting hot and tired were gone through with, and by and by the rovers straggled back to camp, fortified with responsible appetites, and then the destruction of the good things began. After the feast there was a refreshing season of rest and chat in the shade of spreading oaks. By and by somebody shouted, "'Who's ready for the cave?' Everybody was. Bundles of candles were procured, and straightway there was a general scamper up the hill. The mouth of the cave was up the hillside, an opening shaped like a letter A. Its massive oaken door stood unbarred. Within was a small chamber, chilly as an ice-house, and walled by nature with solid limestone that was dewy with a cold sweat. It was romantic and mysterious to stand here in the deep gloom and look out upon the green valley shining in the sun. But the impressiveness of the situation quickly wore off, and the romping began again. The moment a candle was lighted there was a general rush upon the owner of it. A struggle and a gallant defense followed, but the candle was soon knocked down or blown out, and then there was a glad clamor of laughter and a new chase. But all things have an end. By and by the procession went filing down the steep descent of the main avenue, the flickering rank of lights dimly revealing the lofty walls of rock almost to their point of junction sixty feet overhead. This main avenue was not more than eight or ten feet wide. Every few steps other lofty and still narrower crevices branched from it on either hand, for MacDougall's cave was but a vast labyrinth of crooked aisles that ran into each other and out again and led nowhere. It was said that one might wander days and nights together through its intricate tangle of rifts and chasms and never find the end of the cave and that he might go down and down and still down into the earth, and it was just the same, labyrinth underneath labyrinth, and no end to any of them. No man knew the cave. That was an impossible thing. Most of the young men knew a portion of it, and it was not customary to venture much beyond this known portion. Tom Sawyer knew as much of the cave as any one. The procession moved along the main avenue some 